This episode of the Spiritually Sassy Show is brought to you by the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, where Saab began his own career in wellness as a certified health coach. IIN's Holistic Health and Nutrition School will teach you how to change lives, including your own. As a certified health coach, you'll align with your purpose, unlock your potential, and create the career of your dreams. IIN pioneered the field of health coaching with the Health Coach Training Program and created a movement to change the health and happiness of the world. At IIN, you'll not only learn about integrative nutrition, they offer a more holistic and comprehensive approach to care, including incorporating relationships, mental well-being, career, and more. Payment plans start as low as $199 a month, and as a member of our community, you'll save $2,500 off tuition if you mention Sa Di Simone at registration. Discover how to nourish, heal, and thrive in all aspects of your life and career. Sign up today at the link in the show notes and prepare to be empowered to tap into your innate wisdom and live a life you love. What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sadi Simone. I'm a mystic, an artist, a transformational speaker, a two-time best-selling author, and the creator of the Somatic Activated Healing Method. And like I said before, soon to be three-time best-selling author with your support. I have a new book coming out later this year. Uh, I'm so grateful and excited for you to get into this episode. And don't forget, if you love the show, please rate, review, subscribe, and stay in touch with me at Sa Di Simone on Instagram or TikTok, or go ahead and check out my website, sadisimone.com. Our guest today is the legendary Caverly Morgan. What a name. Oh my goodness. Let me give you a little info on who this legend is. Caverly Morgan is a meditation teacher, a nonprofit founder, speaker, and author. She's the founder of Peace in Schools. I can't wait to talk to you all about this. Peace in Schools is a nonprofit that created the nation's first four-credit mindfulness class in public high schools. I mean, talk about legend. Caverly is also the founder of Presence Collective, a community of cross-cultural contemplatives committed to personal and collective transformation. She's the author of a kid's book about mindfulness, as well as the heart of who we are, realizing freedom together, okay? Caverly blends the original spirit of Zen with the modern non-dual approach. Her practice begun in 1995, just when I was born. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, She has included eight years of training in a silent Zen monastery. She has been teaching contemplative practice since 2001 and leads meditation retreats, workshops, and online classes internationally. Learn more at caverlymorgan.org. Okay, welcome to the show, my darling. What a bio. Hi. <laughs> Thank you, love. I'm so glad to be here. It's, it's so sweet to me that I asked you how you'd like me to refer to you before we started, and you gave me full permission to say what I want to say, which is, darling, love, um, dear one, I am honored to be with you. Oh, thank you, my darling. Thank you so much. We're so happy you're here. You Mm. know, um, it it really is like, 
I, I love when people are taking their spiritual practice off the mat into the world. I think that's like a Sean Korn statement, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, but turning spirituality into activism, I think oftentimes yeah. spirituality has become really, uh, self-care has become completely in about being intoxicated with feeling good, forgetting that feeling good is not the purpose of the spiritual path. That's like personal development. And that's over here. And that there's a place and time for that. But when, when we're talking about profound spiritual liberation practices, the activism is kind of like the natural next step, wouldn't you say? I really would. I think that's a great way to say it. Um, and I think it's not necessarily there for everybody. Like I've got room for like, hey, that's not my path. That's my not my jam. I'm an artist. I'm an introvert. This is what my life looks like. Like I think what I'm ready to more fully advocate for in my life is mm. letting go of all the shoulds, you know, okay. like, oh, in spiritual practice, I should just be only focused on my own liberation. And it's a distraction to focus on the collective, like, okay, that's not useful. Um, but, you know, for someone who's not called to activism, it might be not useful, not helpful for them to feel like, okay, now that's the right answer, right? Mm -hmm. So, what's really true for us? What's true for each of us? And we have to do a lot of teasing apart all the conditioning that we've downloaded, all the messages from society and from spiritual sectors that we've downloaded about mm -hmm. what the true path looks like. Mm -hmm. You're definitely more evolved than me. You're definitely more evolved than me because I'm still putting out there the capital S should spirituality should lead to activism, period. And I'm not letting anyone have it different. I'm like, honey, if your self-care is not leading to community care, we got something to talk about, you know? Well, listen, I'm with but you. Hey, I want to, I want to walk the path of, of potentially following into your footsteps, you know, and, and being just more like, fine, do you, whatever. But I'm just, my heart is aching, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, with no, the death I'm of my you. mother, I have no tolerance for people. Yeah. I have no tolerance for people who are just selfish, you know? Well, and this is the thing I think that's worth unpacking because I'm totally with you. That's why I wrote the book about, exactly. I mean, basically it was called Collective Liberation until I realized that's not the right title for <laughs> on the front of this book. And fair enough, but that's the heart of the book. And so I, I couldn't be more fully aligned and with you. And it's really interesting to me how tripped up we get the minute there's anything we're not willing to have tolerance for. Like what happens to my own commitment to collective care if I can't even tolerate that you are not doing X the way I believe X should happen? I just think that's worth unpacking. And I know in my own bones is worth unpacking because I've had so much work to do to set aside my own agenda about what should be happening in this country right now. I've had, I've, I've, yeah, it's, it's been a really important process internally and then therefore in community. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about your new book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. And this is published by the legendary publisher, Sounds true, honey. Who you love too, honey. Who I love too. So honored to be part of the Sounds True family. Okay, tell us about the book and what led you to writing it. And that's like such an impeccable title. And I mean, mm. I'm just like fully gagged. When when I heard about the book, 
you know, when we are like doing our research about guests for the show, and I was like, oh, cool, I love that. And, and the, the the project in schools, I was like, 100%. And then the title of the book, I was like, okay, definitely, you're must in the, in the show, must, because yeah. freedom together, I mean, hello. So bring us into that space. You know, one of the things that I got really clear about when I left the monastery where I, was at, where I was training is exactly where this rub is for you. I recognized, okay, all these personal tools, these personal practice tools for liberation are very useful, very helpful, have made an impact on my life. But what does that have to do with the collective? Where, where, Why are we not having conversations about systems of oppression in this monastic setting? Why are we only focusing on personal liberation? And, and what the hell is up with the personal and collective as being seen as totally separate things? So that became a, not just an intellectual interest for me. It became something that... Uh, I, I was committed to seeing what shifts collectively if we could apply some of these practices that I've been using in a personal way to the collective. And that's really, that's the core of the book is taking these personal practices, applying them collectively. Uh, my buddy uh, Rashid Hughes and I are going to do an online collective experience where folks can move through the book using these tools, but in community. In fact, you'll you'll think this is a trip, I think, uh, that when I first pitched this with Sounds True, I was like, I just want to write the book for collectives. Like, I don't it, I don't want it to be a book anyone can read by themselves. Wow. And they were like, um, yeah, that's very sweet, dear, but no, because, you know, it's just not a popular way to try to sell books, right? So that's when I, you know, got to back up, realize, okay, someone's going to read this by themselves and they're not going to want to join any community to get into the bumps and rubs of what happens as we move through these practices together. Um, and that's okay. You know, they'll get what they get out of it and that's okay. So I'm, uh, I'm actually grateful that Sounds True kind of pushed at this idea of mine to, to have it be a little more radical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Before we unpacked realizing freedom together, talk to us about what is it what was it like to be in eight years of monastic living? Like, excuse me, please explain. You know, I've done um, a 30 day and I was about to complete another 30 day, but my mom was on her, you know, dying. So I had to like leave and I wish I left sooner and I wish I never went. And so I could have been there during the dying process uh, mm -hmm. longer, but fuck it. You know, that was the karma. I, it was, it was what it mm -hmm. was. It is what it is. I I'm slowly feeling the presence of my mom with me all the time. Um, but talk to me about eight years. Like, what prompted you? Did you have a, a, a dark night of the soul, a rock bottom, alcoholic parents? What prompted you to, like, go into, say, bye, society. I'm going to go for eight fucking years to try to get my, to try to understand my mind and open my heart. Mm -hmm. Like, give us, walk us into that, that space. Yeah, yeah, sure. But you know, first, I actually just want to pause and acknowledge how much it moves my heart to hear you speak about your mom. I'm actually, the reason I have this trippy backdrop is because I'm staying in a childhood friend of my mother's right now, and my mother's in a nursing home, and I'm moving through my mom's decline with her. And so I just want to 
like have a moment of recognition of what it means to care for a mother and then feel the loss of mother. I've been really, really present to that in my own life. So I just thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you. And I think to some degree, there's a way in which my connection with my mom has something to do with my time at the monastery. I saw I saw the, the, the purity of my mom's heart and being as she moved through the world. And I also saw a lot about the ways that she suffered. And I was really interested in what I, I saw myself uh, through practice get to unpack that I don't have to download all of the conditioned thoughts, beliefs, behaviors that that she's grown up with. And a lot of it actually is related to collective systems because a lot of it had to do with patriarchy. So I had this opportunity to say, there is real conditioning that she has downloaded and then is acting out of in the world. And I saw how it bound her, you know, how she was operating from, from being like tied up in a way. And I knew I wanted something different for myself. And I didn't know how the hell to access that. And it really wasn't until I started going on to some Zen retreats where I was like, Ooh, that's the flavor of freedom. Hmm. That's, that's the taste of liberation. And in, in having those experiences, I got more and more committed to what happens if I stabilize in that? What if it's not just like a hobby or a little thing I do when I'm not working and it's not just what I'm doing with my vacation time, but it's like, that is like, okay, here's what it's like to keep my eye on the prize. Mm. And I didn't know I was going for eight years. I thought I was going for six months and then I flipped a coin and the coin said stay. And I figured, you know, mm -hmm. I would have done two out of three, if it had said leave. And that gave me my answer. You know, I knew after six months that I had just scratched the surface of, of what it meant to train in this way. Mm -hmm. But I, like you, I, I look back and I think, did I really need eight years there? <laughs> like I have, mm -hmm. I have, you know, um, particular, um, Things I mean, and some of it has to do with my mom. Like things will arise, and I realize oh, I was absent to support her through that particular thing, like the death of her mom, because wow. I was in this like super tight structure. So all good learning, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? What was the biggest takeaway from eight years of of stabilizing? Because that's something we we talk about on the show, and I talk about uh, with with my community too. It's like, you know. It's if I didn't have the 10 years of practice, my, my mom's death would have been, you know, a thousand times worse. Yeah. I think it's, I'm devastated and lost and I'm, but what's happening now, it's I'm not having um, panic attacks. I'm not having as much splitting, dissociation, derealization, depersonalization. I'm not yes. pathologizing these feelings. I'm not pathologizing my grief. I'm not pathologizing the fact that sometimes I can't get out of bed. Sometimes yeah. I do want to take my own life, but I'm not, you know, I'm not labeling myself with a fixed identity. I'm allowing myself to be a process, an ongoing moving process that right now is, is moving through the valley of shadows. And it's extremely 
painful. And some days I don't want to eat. And some days all I want to do is sit in my balcony and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. Thank goodness I'm sober fucking almost six years because if I wasn't, honey, you better believe this bitch would be fucking cracked out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I get it. So mm-hmm. like what, it, so if it, if it wasn't for the stabilization over the, the, this last decade of choosing to get free every single day, even if it's a little bit, a little bit, this would have been, this would have like literally taken my own life. And, and we have a history of, of extreme mental illness in my family. We have a history of suicide in my family. We mm-hmm. have a history, I mean, literally my family tree is painted with the entire rainbow of all things. And right. my mom died at 60. And when I was talking to Fritzi Hortzman, who, you know, was really versed in the ACE study, she right. was like, she died at the exact age that she was, um, she was quote unquote meant to die. And, and we don't say meant in a, in a easy way at all, but just mm-hmm. given how many of the adverse childhood experiences yeah, yeah. he had, she was have been expected to live longer than that. That's right. Totally unless weird. she had the, unless she's done the crazy thing that you have done or the crazy thing that I'm, you know, trying to do. And I actually have to give myself more credit uh, that I'm doing, um, choosing to go to that place every day and just bring that awareness to everything that we're doing. But talk to us, like, what did you learn in eight years? Yeah. You know, you know, because I'm connecting so much with what you're talking about, I really just feel like I'm picking up what you're putting down. And I I feel like I resonate a lot with the learning is how to have this shit that feels esoteric in one moment actually apply to your everyday life. It's the thing that lets you say, I'm now putting this foot in front of the other because I know all I've got is now. What I have is now. And all the, all the crap that we trip out on is when we're feeding some idea or story that there's all this other stuff that's real besides now. And what I hear you acknowledging is the power of having a practice that has you take life moment by moment. And I'm projecting that there's, it's because there's a deep intuition. And I know from your work that you have the realization around, cause that's all there is. This is it y'all like, this is it. So how am I going to be with this now? And I feel like what I learned is how to have a practice. That's a backbone. So when shit comes my way, I have, it's like a, a ground to stand on. I mean, I, there, I'm, there is some shit happening in my world right now on the relative plane. Mm. And there's, it's like, there's somewhere to stand. There's like, it's like having shoes that allow you, or I'll, I'll actually use the, the image that just came to mind is that phrase, finding the seat of dignity, Oof. right? So it's, it's more than shoes. It's like, okay, I can find the seat of dignity in the chaos because practice has shown me that that's always available. Practice has shown me that's always here and now. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So what we learn through through our daily practice is meeting the now, right? I think this nowness is really like the 
the the seat of dignity and and I love that statement. I'm like, it's wow, good, how beautiful. I'm like, please, I hope you put that in the book, honey, because that's delicious. Really, really good. Okay, so let's dive into this a little bit more. Uh, in your book, you write, the longer we cling to the notion that there is a separate self who awakens, the more arduous our path will be. We realize freedom together. Can you like break this down for us? Because I, I think there is a lot of like, we're all one and it's all one love and na, na, na. And I'm like, okay, but like, how the fuck does that help me? You know, when yes. I am in the couch, literally excruciating pain um, yes. or someone who, or a mom who, who has working three jobs, single mom, can't afford, and she's listening to the show. Like, how does this bring peace to anyone? Can you walk us into that? Thank you, yeah. my love, by the way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm already like, yes, I'm, I'm feeling energized. Thank you for this no, conversation. No, I'm feeling so energized. Thank you. I'm just really, yeah, I'm really vibing with this. And I, I think in particular, I just appreciate your energy and your passion for liberation. It comes through like everything you say. And um, and it lights me up. And so that's contagious. And so thank you for that. But I, I really, I, I think in some ways, my life has been dedicated to reaching the person who feels like, what the fuck? What do you mean? We're all one. Like in a way, that's why I ended up in schools. Like that's why, that's why I end up working outside quote unquote, traditional Buddhist contexts. You know, I mean, I have these Zen roots, but like, I don't know that the word Buddhist is actually anywhere on my website. And it's not because I don't, <laughs> I feel funny saying it, but like, I love the Buddhists, you know, like it's, it's not because I don't love the Buddhists. It's because, um, it's because I have so much commitment to what's beyond all our labels. And that goes beyond the label of, um, I'm a person with three jobs. Yeah, that's true on the relative plane. I'm Buddhist. Okay. That's true on the relative plane, but what's What's underneath, and by the way, I should back up by relative plane. I just want to clarify for anyone who's listening that's like, what the hell is she talking about? I'm just talking about the world that's always changing, the world of identity, the world where I go by she, her, the world by, where I'm a white woman, comes from a particular line of privilege, that world. And so there's a way in which my work has been inspired by getting to the heart of who we really are. Now, it's true on that realm, we are all one. But what interests me is if we're not deeply in touch with the truth of that, but we're just running around yoga studios saying it, we're not, we might be missing the way in which a lot of people are coming through those doors, not feeling like they're treated like we're all one. So in my world right now, what's what I'm passionate about is how can we address what's happening on the relative, acknowledge these systems of oppression? Where do we sit in that? What's our work to do in that? How are we in relationship with each other, given these conditioned systems that are collective? How is that conditioning affecting me personally? How is it affecting me collectively? And then what's it like to touch the awareness that we're all one while holding the truths of this relative plane too? So all of it can be um, addressed in a way that's not um, that's not leading to further suffering. Mm, beautiful. What happens when we have this realization that we are deeply interdependent? What, like how, 
where where does the 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 conditioning go? How do we relate to our inner world? You know, something that I um, was talking to my sister about yesterday, and we talk a lot about this too. It's this, you know, like everything is empty of inherent existence, you know, and like, this is really big in the Buddhist path. And a lot of people are like empty of inherent existence. What the fuck does that mean? Um, you know, and I think that is something that points to once we realize our deep interdependence, right? Can you break that down for us? And, and like, for someone who's just coming onto it, like, what does it mean to feel and see through the eyes of someone who is in the stabilized awareness that we are deeply interdependent and that things only exist in context and things are deeply, you know, only coming to be because of something else, like that kind of uh, view. Am Am I making sense? You're totally making sense. And you know, it's interesting. I mentioned this in the book, but I don't, I, I'm down with the phrase interdependent. I'm down with the phrase interconnected. And I also think there's a usefulness in questioning even that phrase, because if I say I'm interconnected with you, there's kind of an implication that you're over there and I'm over here, but you know, I'm connected to you, but it still can maintain a subtle sense of you and I are separate. Now, of course, on the relative plane, we are separate. We've had different experiences. We've had different lives. We have different mothers, (laughs) but there is, I think what you are honing in on and what's interesting to me as well is what is it that's deeply shared? with us. That actually goes beyond interconnected. I mean, now we're talking shared being. We're talking about a consciousness that is actually the same consciousness. You're simply appearing as this form, this beloved form over there on that little square screen right now. And I'm over here appearing on this screen, but it's the same consciousness that we're made of that we're arising as, and actually that we're even known by. Like, how do I, how do I know that you're there? Because I'm conscious of you. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's kind of a fun play with, with terms and words to, to consider that maybe even the term interconnected can lead to some misunderstanding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes, like we're that. interconnected, right? Like you know, totally. you, you do one thing, and that affects me, and right. So it's true on that. It's true on a realm, mm-hmm. and then I on this this sort of absolute realm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like the realm where it's not the realm of everything changing, right? It's not the realm of birth and death. On that absolute realm, there's just shared being. Keep going. That is the thing right there that I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I love that I, I mentioned Zen master Banke in my book, and he talks about the unborn mind. And by the way, I just have to go back because I've been feeling bad about cultural appropriation because I cannot remember in this moment who said seed of dignity, but I need it to be clear it wasn't me. I think it's one of the um, Trungpa Rinpoches or something. So anyway, mm-hmm. just for any listeners that want to look it up, mm-hmm. please do. And I'm, mm-hmm. I apologize that I can't think of who said it. So, you know, yeah, shared, shared being, shared consciousness, um, 
Zen master Banke talked about the unborn mind, the mind that isn't, it doesn't have a start and end, like this consciousness that doesn't, isn't born, doesn't die. The appearance of your physical form is born, it dies. The appearance of my physical form is born, it dies. But I think what you and I are focusing on right now is what is it that doesn't die? Because our life shifts when we start to feel like, oh, that's who I am. I am, I am the thing that's not going to die. Not because I'm a person who lives forever. God bless us if AI figures out how to whatever, make, make us live forever. Not because of that, but because there's something else. And, and I know you know this experience as a mystic, right? Like there's something else that we can rest into that actually has nothing to do with our personalities, nothing to do with whether we smoke or don't smoke, nothing to do whether with whether we fell off the wagon or didn't fall off the wagon, nothing to do with whether we've been an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I love this unborn mind. What a beautiful, that beautiful statement. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So the practice of realizing our unborn mind. Wow, that's so profound. Just saying it, you know, and, and the practice of touching that unborn mind, it's simply sitting on the cushion and and trying to figure out if there is a, a self to hold on to, if there is a, a Caverly in the cushion, or if there is a Sa in the cushion. And the more you ask, where is Sa? Where is Caverly in this? In this process that we call cavalry, in this process that we we so uh, you know you know casually but so fixed um, name sa cavalry, and then the moment that we sit and we start to ask and we start to question, bringing a scientific approach to our spiritual practice, we realize that there is no sa to find and there is no cavalry to find, and then through that process we arrive at the unborn mind. And, and that's when, you know, the hurdles of life don't become so, so, so suffering inducing. And I think that's what the Buddha offered. It's like pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. It's, we can kind of rely on that as when we have the awareness of the unborn mind. I'm not there all the time or barely ever, but I've, I've touched that little, you know, sweet nectar. Absolutely. Uh, and you know what interests me is what does our activism look like if that's the place we're coming from? Like if if I know who I am on the deepest level, how does my activism in the world shift? Mm. It's not about a should. It's just about what what shifts with it, what changes with it. You know what I'm saying? Mm, keep going, honey. I'm just like, please, gagging over here. What happens with our activism when we have the awareness of the unborn mind? Oh, my God. That's your next book, honey. <laughs> well, in a way, it's this one. I think you just summed it up better. Okay, good. Keep going. Take it away. And and it's it's like leading perfect with my next question, but I'll let you like lead with that. What happens with our activism once we have that embodiment of the unborn mind? Well, I just have noticed in my own life the temptation to recognize how much suffering there is when we perceive other. So when I'm a separate self, I want to wake up. I want to have my 
enlightenment. Thank God the ego cannot be enlightened. So there is actually no such thing as an enlightened ego. So my all my efforts for me to be a more enlightened person are 100% in vain. So there's this pattern that we have personally and collectively to reinforce a sense of separate self. What changes? So we know what activism in the world looks like when that's where I'm coming from. We, it looks like a lot of othering. It looks like, and I, and I'm not even saying this is bad. I, on a, on the biggest step back, zoom out scale, I think it's actually an important part of human, the evolution of human consciousness. So I'm not poo-pooing anything, but we, if we look deeply, we might find that if I, it, I'll, I'll speak for myself, if I've been engaging with a kind of activism that is reinforcing other, 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 me, other, me, other, me, other, there's a lot of suffering in it. And what interests me is what is the activism that is, that is still as vibrantly, alively committed to transformation and change in the world, but moving from the soil of the unborn mind. Because then to me, activism is all an expression of love and an expression of care and an expression that we have voice when we recognize that breaches in our shared being. Because we're living and moving from shared being. Not just that. our not just our thoughts about it, but a direct experience of it, right? Mm. And having direct experience of our shared being, that is, you know, one of the ways to define a, a mystical experience, you know? Absolutely. And I love that. And you know, the the this kind of leads perfectly into the difference between modern self-care and deep self-liberation practices with the purpose of helping to heal the collective. Can you explain to us the difference between between that? Because I know you speak about this in the book. So the difference between modern self-care and the deep self-liberation practices with the purpose of helping to heal the collective. Yeah, modern self-care reinforces this notion that you are a self. So, great, today I feel good because my skin looks good and I've had all this self-care and my nails are good and whatever, right? And again, super important to clarify, I'm not poo-pooing that. I love a good pedicure, okay? So this isn't about that being right or wrong. It's about recognizing that I'm reinforcing a sense of separation through some of my practices of self-care if I'm not paying attention mm -hmm. to how that process might be happening. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that if we're focused on letting go of the ego, we don't get pedicures. That's not, that's not true at all. It's mm -hmm. all in the process. It's the what, not the how. So for example, if someone's talking about self-love, but they're only trying to love the personality, that's not the same thing as recognizing the love that is, is infused in our very being and letting that love manifest in the world by recognizing self-worth. And I don't mean egoic self. I mean the worthiness of 
our very being, existence, consciousness, right? Now, consciousness isn't worthy or unworthy. So I'm talking about what we do in relationship to consciousness when we're identified as being separate from it. But are you with me? Do you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Keep going. Yep. Yeah. I'm right there. So what's what's interesting to me is, you know, what sh- if we're really not seeing self-love as a reinforcement of the ego practice, then actually love is love. Love is it love is uh Rupert Spira talks about love is the recognition of shared being. Mm. And so if if that's if that's love, then then me feeling love and connection to you in this moment is actually, it's not a different, it's just one expression of the very same love that maybe is going to manifest in terms of, I'm going to have a really healthy meal tonight because I've been eating like shit lately and I want to make sure to eat something green. Um, So it's, again, it's in the what, not the how. And for so many of us, wellness practices, spiritual practices that focus on self-care are reinforcing the very thing that's actually creating the suffering, which is a sense that I'm separate. I'm either taken care of or not taken care of. I'm either a victim or I'm a perpetrator or I'm, right? And this mind of duality opens. I'm fat or I'm thin. Oh, today I'm thin. Today, nope. Today I'm fat. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And this leads me perfect to chapter seven of your book titled Return to Unity, Seeing Through Duality. Can you run with this for us? Because it's like, from what I'm gathering, it's once we arrive at the shared, um, at this, you know, uh, unborn mind, at the shared love consciousness at this place of, of, I have to use the word interdependence because that's how I've been indoctrinated into it. Um, We, duality falls away, right? The binary dissolves the, the idea of happy or sad or good or bad. It kind of all falls away. There just is in this, in this isness there, there, the isness from what I understand, there's, there's sort of these qualities that are part of in the, you know, in the Vedic tradition, um, it's called, you know, they, they say Satchitananda, right? I think it's bliss, wisdom, luminosity or something. I haven't spoken about this in a long time. And in Buddhism, we have sort of the, the paramitas, right? Or like the heart qualities. And I, I like to think that this isness has these qualities that help us see life, ourselves, the world without duality. Am I on the, am I on the money? Am I on the right direction with this? I'm kind of like taking in what you, what, what you wrote in chapter seven, but I want to hear what you have to say. You're on my money. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, um, what's been so helpful to me about recognizing duality is seeing that it's a created form. So you talked about emptiness a bit ago, you know, that, that duality is a, a form that arises in vastness, but isn't, doesn't have inherent reality to itself. So when we're identified with the mind of duality, the reason suffering occurs is because 
There's the apparent duality of fat versus thin, um, self-care versus treating myself like shit. These, these dualistic um, forms that arise, those are there on the level of content. But the real issue is I is who I become in relationship to that duality. That's, that's the fundamental duality that creates so much suffering. So I am identified as the subject and these things are the object. And this goes back to a separate self cannot awaken. A separate self can only be dissolved in the light of consciousness. And now what's it like when we're doing that collectively, when we're together in this process, when we're, when we're honoring each other's lived experiences and not just jumping to we're all one and skipping over all the places where harm is happening because yes, on the absolute realm, we're all one. And on the relative realm, there's a lot of shit going on that that a lot of a lot of expressions that i that i talk about as as tears in the fabric of our shared being mm-hmm. and how do we deal with that like how do we approach the collective pain as our own pain and that's something that i when i people ask people are like oh did you ever dream that you're going to do all this and 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 you know, go here and there and, and like, and all these sort of, you know, uh, for people who are not in my nervous system, in my body are seeing it as all these extraordinary experiences that they all want to have. And I'm telling my students who are doing the deep dive of the somatic activator teacher training, which is a two month deep dive with me. It's, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours of work. And I'm telling them to dream a new dream and to not dream the dream that I'm living right now because I actually woke up out of that, out of that dream after my mom died, that that's not what I want. Um, And the reason why I'm saying all of this, it's like, we, we, um, fuck, I lost my train of thought, but it was something to the, to the effect of like, Oh, the why, what you're doing, I, I, I want to, did you ever dream of this? Did you like already, you know, was this in your mood board or something people may say? And I'm always like, no, it was like a natural next step. The pain of the world felt like my own pain, you know, and I have a, a teacher, uh, Tenzin Choki, and she says, there is a point in our awakening that when we are, you know, sleeping and we're cold at night, we don't wake up and like, oh, I'm cold. What do I do? Okay, let me grab the sheets. So let me grab the blanket and let me cover myself in all in this way and let me go back to sleep. It happens automatically. And and in in the Mahayana Vajrayana, you know, um, sort of esoteric Buddhist path, this Bodhisattva way of living. It's the the awaken to this. I think Thich Nhat says the shared presence or the interbeing and interconnectedness, all you know, all speaking about yeah. the same thing. But like, would you? Can you speak to that? Where it, it like caring for the other becomes as automatic as caring for for the self when we wake up to that unborn mind. You know, it's the natural byproduct of waking up to the reality of the unborn mind. We we. We can't, I can't see your pain as separate from mine. 
We, we, I can't see you as separate from me. So there's a, there's a honesty in, maybe honesty is not the right word. There's a purity in this recognition that the only things that have been feeding this idea that you and I are separate are ideas. Because the, and I think this is why the word honest arose, the honest expression of what is, is that you and I are simply appearances of the same being. And so it, if I'm in touch with that shared being, it's impossible for me not to feel affected by what else is happening to my being. It's like if somebody steps on my right foot, the rest of my body has a felt experience because we know intellectually, yeah, this one body here. We wouldn't expect the rest of the body not to be impacted because someone steps on my, on my right foot. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the, I think that's where we, the, the practices of tending to the garden of the mind, opening the heart, the Bodhisattva path as Mahayana Vajrayana, uh, you know, schools speak about this idea that what's going on for you, your pain is part of my pain. And I, I, and, and that's been really helpful. I think a lot of people who, um, sometimes mistaken, um, feeling the pain of others as like the greatest, um, for like a superpower. Now I like to say that the superpower becomes what you do with that. Does your empathy lead you to be, I live in a glass tower now. I never go away. I never go anywhere. Cause I'm going to feel this shit from everybody. And I'm gonna, like, uh, uh-uh. and that kind of like self-centeredness and like ego boost of like, I'm an empath. And he literally makes me gag and not the good gag because your empathy <laughs> capital S should bring you into the, the innate qualities of that unborn mind, which is care, compassion, understanding, and yeah. the, the pain of the world. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm saying the word should a lot because I'm, I'm in this season of, of, I have no tolerance for, for uh-huh. certain that. things, you know, I get that. Mm-hmm. And and it's like yes, once if we can't walk down the street and see someone who's unhoused in the cold in the rain, and there's no movement internally, you are numb, you are desensitized, you are frozen, um, so deeply frozen that you're 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 missing an opportunity to care for yourself. You're you're missing an opportunity to love, and. Who doesn't long for love? So the sad thing is we're caught in these survival strategies and coping mechanisms of going numb and not seeing the reality of what's going on around us, not seeing people sleep on the street, stepping over them. You know, we're, we're, we're then going to like a spiritual retreat because we say we want to feel love, but we've, we've missed the very 
opportunity that is the the suchness of our own lived experience that's inviting us to feel that love in in every moment. And I'm of course I lead retreats. Of course I'm not saying like no don't go on these retreats. They're very helpful for practice. But as you point out, if we can only experience peace in our island oasis home where we don't see those people on the street, then it's a very fragile peace. And if I can only feel love for my fellow Buddhists on this retreat who are all being vulnerable with me, then, but I don't feel love for the person I just stepped over as I'm making my way to the retreat, uh, like before I get on the subway, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. Say it, honey. So many times we were like, I'm running late to a yoga class and they literally step over someone on the street. And I'm like, um, and you know, I noticed the amount of anger that is still in my soil, in my internal world. And I was talking to Mirabai Star about this, living in Indonesia and in Bali for a while and seeing a lot of privileged white folks come in and treat the Balinese, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who mm-hmm. are, that's their land. And just seeing how like, you know, they're bagging on the streets and then like an American person or a white person, whatever, if you carry euros or dollars or whatever, like your money goes so far for them. You have a fucking dollar bitch to give to somebody who's bagging. Oh, but they're a crackhead. Oh, they're going to do this. They're going to die. Like, shut the fuck up. You're this white missionary perspective. Like, you know, what's happening in their life. Like, You yeah. lost the plot. Oh yeah. my God. It makes me so exhausted. And I was in the podcast, you know, like this with these experts. And I'm so grateful for you guys, you know, holding me through my own inner revelations and my own inner turmoil um, that I get to like be educated while we're having these conversations. And and Mirabai Star just said, keeping angry sites, it's helping, you know. And I was like, oh, thank you for validating that. Cause it's it's this um anger that leads to like skillful means where I feel um, confident to speak about these topics here. And then here you are writing this amazing book and doing all this amazing work and, um, you know, kind of leading into my, to my, um, next question. I want to talk about your nonprofit peace in schools. Can you walk us into that? Like, this is like such an amazing thing you've done and like you, um, you better be, you know, feeling good when you go to sleep, honey, because that's really fucking cool shit you've done. Well, I appreciate that. And it's nice. You know how when you get inside something and you're in the weeds of like, holy shit, are we going to get the funding we need for next month or whatever? You know, you can kind of forget to step back. But when I step back, I can tell you it's it's a badass program. And what's badass is that we get to be with the same set of teens for over 70 hours. So these are teens that are not just learning how to direct the attention to the present moment without judgment. These are teens who are actually exploring the nature of the mind and asking like, what, how is the mind, how does the conditioned mind perceive duality? What, what, how is the mind dualistic? What did, what, what is my experience of the fallout of that kind of thinking? What is negative self-talk? How does that arise? What's my relationship to this disembodied voice of the inner critic who has all this shit to say about my life, but doesn't even have a body? Where is the compassionate mentor within? What is it like to cultivate a relationship with that compassionate mentor? And, And how am I projecting my perceived reality onto the world? And what kind of suffering 
exists because of all the things I'm projecting. So, so these are the kinds of things that these teenagers are, are accessing. And one of the things I'm most pleased about regarding how the program has evolved is that teens are doing it while belonging in a collective. So it's these, all this transformation only exists because of collective care. And so our classrooms take place in this um, environment of care that stands for confidentiality, acceptance, reverence, and empathy. And yes, they have reverence in a high school setting, which is just totally awe-inspiring. Wow. Um, we, we define reverence as respect tinged with awe. Wow. And so it's, it's really transformational for young people. And we're in eight schools in Portland with a semester-long credited course called Mindful Studies. And we're in process right now um, with creating a model that's scalable. And we're working with some schools in the Bay Area, as well as some more schools in Oregon to test, test this model. And we're working with the Sounds True Foundation right now to get some partnership going around getting this work out into the world. So that's super exciting. I know you you and I both mm-hmm. love Sounds True. That's amazing, Caverly. Wow. Oh my goodness. That would have, you know, changed the course of my life. And I think for a lot of people, high school it, it is an extremely uh, traumatizing place. Oh, hell so. yeah. I mean, Absolutely. The most common thing we hear from people is that my life would be different if I had had all those tools when I was 16. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Wow. One question that I didn't get to ask you, um, which is kind of unrelated to, to, you know, kind of the direction that we've gone in and we've touched on it for like a, a millisecond um, but have you ever had a mystical experience in all of your years as a practitioner? Yes, without a doubt. And I sometimes hesitate to even call them mystical because there's a way in which I feel that our society already has this distorted notion of enlightenment as some kind of like exotic, esoteric experience where, you know, the kundalini energy does this. And and to be honest, you know, sometimes um, there's not a lot of body stuff associated with um, experiences of recognizing the nature of our very being and 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 recognizing that that being is is shared. And so I like to in a sense demystify in order to allow for for what's possible for us to truly feel accessible. And and not not because I just want it to feel that way, but because it is. I mean, what's more natural than your very being? Maybe when you when you rest into it and touch it, there are special experiences that happen sometimes. But I I kind of I think also just coming from a Zen tradition. Um, I remember I, I I had a guidance appointment with my teacher once, and I had just had this super trippy experience where I could like um, I could like see consciousness in a very specific way that was not part of my everyday experience. And I started describing it for my teacher and she was like, 
yeah, well, maybe you were just hallucinating. And I was like, what? It was like so deflating. And then I finally realized later, oh, what she's trying to do is make sure I don't attach to that, that I don't, that I don't think like, oh, that's the golden ticket. Cause really the golden ticket is our very being. Mm-hmm. And it's simple and it's accessible and it's always here. It's always now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are bright lights with it. And sometimes there's the cotton candy. And sometimes there's like nothingness. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to kind of go off the demystifying mystical experiences, you know, that's part of the reason why I asked this question is to to arrive at this place that like a mystical experience is not like, you know, like you come home at night and the black Madonna sitting at your dinner table being like, girl, I've been waiting for you. You know what I mean? Or you're I like a deep. to tell you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not like that or always like that. It's, it's the simplicity of, of like, you know, sometimes like not screaming back when you're being screamed at or this enormous wave of energy to help and you and help in ways that you have no clue how to historically to help, but like all of a sudden you have all this wisdom and yeah. all the tools and the mathematical equation is solved right in front of your eyes. And you could just do the thing that you don't, you, you didn't know you knew how to do it. And now you're able to do it. Like it, I feel like oftentimes when we are going to these kind of the supernatural states, um, we are, our society is sort of pathologizing them mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, and we then become scared of it. So I want to just invite that in. It's like, it's not full of cotton candy and bright lights, honey. And it's not this like Kundalini, third eye, all words that I never speak about ever because I think they're so conditioned with so much fluff. Uh, But just the simplicity of like seeing beauty uh, in someone resting in, in their coffin. Is that even possible? You know, and that's your best friend who died. Um, So that it's like, can you even see the leaves dancing in the wind as you walk out of the funeral home? Is that even possible? And that is what I'm qualifying as a mystical experience. Like, can we, can we rest in that, in beauty when there is no beauty, you know? You know, love, I do think that is the most beautiful reframe. Because there's so much nonsense that goes on with people seeking these spiritual experiences. And then, fuck, I didn't have it. So now I'm just going to do a bunch of drugs. Okay, then at least I had it. All right. So here I am. Okay. But it's, it's, it's confusing what's real and true. And what's real and true is that it's not possible for beauty not to exist in every moment, even when things look rugged on the relative plane. Because beauty is the nature of consciousness shining through experience. And so if you leave a funeral home and you see the beauty of leaves dancing in the wind, it's because you're, you're touching and directly experiencing the unborn mind, the nature of consciousness, what's deeper than that beloved friend who lived and died. The, the, what's what's deeper than just their personal existence, mm-hmm. the personality's beginning and end. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for naming that. Thank you for saying all that. Wow. What a joy. I feel like I, I want to like come and see you and totally. do I, more together. I'm like, wow, I'm what a, you it. are a legend. Thank you for your clarity, your Thank cadence, you. your, and it, it, even in the tone of your voice, I can tell um, you've lived and you are touching in that, in the pain of the world. And it's so beautiful when someone is, um, really living what they're preaching, you know, because I think so often in the, in this sort of wellness industry, um, it's so trendy to like, you know, be spiritual. And I'm like, I'm like, honey, I was genuinely happy in the fashion industry. I thought I was. Uh, so, you know, this isn't something that you want to do because it's cool or trendy. You, it just really, you crack open, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful to see that you've cracked and you had allowed that the heartbreak of living a full life to um, become a place for more light to come in and go out. And it's felt. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Caverly. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Sa. I'm really, yeah, just so touched by your work in the world. And again, your passion, there's this really distorted notion that like spiritual people are gray or dull or always talk in this, like, you know, spiritual voice and, um, you give yourself such permission to just be real and um, expressive and vibrant as vibrancy arises. And you're also not, it's not a, it's not a costume. So in a moment where you're not feeling that, then you have full permission to not feel that too. And that authenticity really touches people and me. So thank you. Oh, thank you, my darling. Thank you. Thank you. And that's not to say that I didn't try to fit in, you know, wearing all white. <laughs> namaste. namaste <laughs> carrying crystals in did my pocket. Did you shave your head though? Oh, I did the full thing, honey. The full did, thing? You shaved did, your head too? Well, I shaved my head two summers ago, but when I was, you know, like monastery hopping in India, Nepal, I was, I was trying to like give the Jesus look. So the really long beard, the really long hair, barefoot, you know, like that look. And there's nothing wrong. I needed that kind of shape up. I needed that kind of right. discipline. I needed that kind of like earth shattering experience. But then I realized, okay, now I'm wearing a costume. Yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. isn't authentic, you know. Now it's become know? like a title. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But did you shave your head in the monastery? I did. Oh, wow. Please send me a picture so I can just <laughs> see it later. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much. You know, I think my biggest takeaway from the episode is I love the 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 wording, the unborn mind. And mm. as we touch the unborn mind, all duality falls away. There's no mm -hmm. self and the other, it just isness and oneness. And I love the way you um, spoke about this. So thank you. Is there one big takeaway that landed for you? Hmm. Oh, just that I'm feeling love for you in this moment and um, appreciating this opportunity and until soon. Please. Thank you. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. And thank you, Caverly. And remember, go get the book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. The book is out now and go to the, to, to the show notes and get the book. And remember, the success of a book is dependent on you buying the book and writing a review. So buy the book wherever you want to buy and write a review and buy two copies, one for you and one for your friend or for your partner, for your mom, whoever you want. And remember what Caverly said at the beginning, this book is ideally read in community. So maybe buy it for your book club or buy it for mm -hmm. your school or for your office. Make the commitment to get free together. Uh, I love you all so much. And if you have thoughts or 
or you know, a desire for a prayer request or feedback, leave me a voicemail at 805-285-2331. And don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to the show and stay in touch with me on Instagram or TikTok at Sadi Simone. And new episode every Tuesday. I love you. Bye. Bye.